This is the Nordic Asia podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia podcast. This is a collaboration between the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and the Center for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I am Petra Desatova and I am a postdoctoral researcher at the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies here in Copenhagen. It's my great pleasure to introduce our today's topic that shares some similarities with our last podcast. We are going to be talking about Japan and global rise in the popularity of sushi. I'm joined today by Tina Borovens, who is an assistant professor in Japan studies at the Department of International Economics, Government and Business at Copenhagen Business School in Denmark. Welcome to the podcast, Tina. Hi, Petra. Thank you for, thank you for having me. Today's topic is absolutely fascinating on so many different levels. And I think for many people, probably if someone says Japan, a lot of people just think of sushi as the first thing. But I am really interested to find out, is sushi really that Japanese as we, as we think about it? It's interesting indeed, because very often when, when friends of mine would have, for example, sushi, they would ask like, now you as a Japan studies person, tell me, is this now really Japanese? And very often people will distinguish the quality between authentically Japanese or not. But when we think of it, what is actually Japanese? Like sushi might be one of the more iconic symbols of the Japanese kitchen and even of Japan in general. but but what of the sushi would need to be real in order in order to deserve that label we're talking about this like authentic japanese are we talking about the composition are we talking about the ingredients does the fish have to come from japan for example should it be made by japanese all these things and and they're questions that are not even possible to answer i think there's definitely a lot to to think about sushi but if i was to ask you how did this concept of the real japanese sushi come into existence what are its its origins well actually Fascinatingly, um, the word or the character in Japanese for sushi doesn't really mean uh, raw fish, which we might think, um, but it refers, it actually means sour tasting and it refers to a preservation method uh, that goes way back and it actually was introduced into Japan via Southeast Asia and China. Um, fish would be filled with salt and as such could be preserved for a long time. And over time, the salt was actually replaced by rice, rice mixed with vinegar. And then, whereas before the rice would be thrown out, all of a sudden Japanese people started to eat this vinegared rice, which was a preservation tool or vehicle as well. The sushi that as we know it today is actually only 200 years old. And it only really became popular after the 50s, I would say. In order to have this sushi as we understand it with like rice and then raw fish on top, we needed, first of all, a fridge. And on the other hand, also the the progress in terms of transportation we needed to be able to transport the fish from wherever it was caught onto the fish market and then onto our rice then if we go a little bit further it would actually be the 50s well we're talking 50s and 60s here and japan's industrial development meant that there was heavy pollution of the waters and on the <laughs> other hand also overfishing so the local fish population in japan went nearly extinct then there was an international decision that fishing nations would have to stick to their national fishing borders. So countries, and this we're talking the 70s now, countries could not anymore just go anywhere and start fishing, but would have to, would have to stay within 200 miles in front of their own coastline. <laughs> and the Japanese fishing fleet, which until then was fishing primarily in its neighbor's waters, could no longer do that. 
um, they had been fishing there until then. And all of a sudden, this international uh, decree kind of stopped that. And it's meant that the Japanese fish supply fell dramatically. And this happened precisely at a time where the domestic demand for fresh fish rose exponentially. Um, we're talking the 80s already now, uh, which were known in Japan as the bubble years, a huge economic growth, and with that also a kind of conspicuous consumption. And this heavily influenced Japanese eating patterns. And as such came uh, the rise of sushi and sushi restaurants. Mm -hmm. If we talk about the consumption is increasing um, and the, the actual source of fish decreasing for Japan, how come that we still know sushi as uh, a bit of rice with a fish on, on, on top, right? So then we have to go back actually to what I said last, um, the 80s, where we had this mm -hmm. like rising demand for fish on the one hand and the local depletion of fish stocks um, in Japan. And in order to solve that problem and satisfy this growing demand for raw fish, Japan turned abroad. And this is specifically the case actually for tuna, which is a very interesting story mm -hmm. because they went um, to the shores of Northeast America, Mexico, Spain, and the best tunas that were found there, they were flown in immediately to Tokyo and sold on the fish market there. And this, because of this society of conspicuous consumption, went for crazy amounts of money. The best tuna was sold for incredible uh, prices. In a period of 10 years, the import of bluefin tuna grew fivefold, and the price which people paid for this tuna rose to 700% in these years. And the impact of this was obviously not only felt in Japan, but also abroad, because in the US, this led to a kind of a, a tuna industry, which was focused entirely and only on the Japanese market. And right at the time when this American bluefin industry and its infrastructure was fully up and running, the Japanese bubble economy, which, um, which we knew was the cause of this whole industry, burst. And as such, also the only market for this American bluefin tuna. So the American fishers had to look for other markets to sell off their tuna because the Japanese market uh, wasn't there anymore. And that's actually a key moment in what we're talking about today, the globalization of this sushi boom, because instead of sending their tuna back to Japan, they had to sell it elsewhere. And where else can you do it better than at home? Uh, and the emerging American sushi hype proved to be the solution to this industry, which was built up and, and developed entirely around the appetite and the taste of the Japanese people. Now, what you were talking about so far has been mostly tuna, right? But I think contemporary, when we go to a restaurant or even in supermarkets where we see packagings of sushi with fish in most cases it is salmon so where and how does the salmon actually come into equation exactly another very interesting story you hint at here because indeed if we look at surveys that were were taken in japan and see what are the most popular types of, of sushi toppings or, mm -hmm. or which type of sushi people like the most salmon in in the last six years was the most favorite sushi topping specifically among young people but if you were in Japan in the 80s, which I wasn't and you weren't either, but if you would have been in Japan in the 80s, you wouldn't have found uh, raw salmon in any of the sushi, uh, sushi shops. Today, some, some very traditional restaurants refused to serve it at all. Uh, traditionally, primarily tuna and halibut were very popular and raw salmon was, was actually or is actually something quite new. And this is the result of something called Project Japan, 
And that was a carefully thought out and efficient marketing campaign set up by the, the region government, which might be interesting because we're a Nordic Asia podcast here. Exactly. Um, in 1985, a delegation of the Norwegian government actually went to Japan and they saw how tuna was sold at very expensive price or very high prices as sushi and sashimi, uh, which is sushi without the rice. Mm -hmm. But salmon was only sold uh, for grilling or for frying. So raw salmon couldn't, or, or salmon wasn't eaten raw in Japan mm -hmm. because the locally caught salmon contained parasites. So it had to be cooked or, fry, uh, cooked or fried or dried for safety reasons. And hence this, this also influenced the, the perception that Japanese people had about salmon. Norway, on the other hand, had huge amount of industrially frozen salmon, which could be eaten raw. And this is the result of commercial salmon farming in Norway, which happened at the time where actually Norwegian consumers turned towards red meat and poultry. Mm -hmm. So in Norway, we had a surplus of, in Norway, we had a surplus of industrially frozen salmon. And then this government delegation sees in Japan, like, wait a minute, we could actually sell our salmon here. It can be eaten raw. So Project Japan was set up. Uh, this was a collaboration between Norwegian salmon farmers and the government, and it aimed towards the acceptance of raw salmon for sushi in Japan. Now, originally, it was very hard to overcome this idea of salmon in Japan as a cheap, even dirty type of fish, and it wasn't fit for raw consumption. But the Norwegians were very persistent and also optimistic. But on the other hand, they were also helped by the economic uh, circumstances. So we're talking mm -hmm. mid-80s here. And as I said, this is the bubble years in Japan. There's a lot of demand and hunger for sushi. There's a growing population with more purchasing power. Uh, and the depletion of domestic fish stocks. Tuna was already being imported, why not something else? Uh, so Norway saw their opportunities there at a moment where Japan was turning from a fish importing, con uh, fish exporting country, sorry, into a fish importing country. And although originally the Japanese reaction called the Norwegian plan something impossible, like Japanese were never gonna eat raw salmon as sushi, it was dirty, it was cheap, uh, it didn't taste well, the color wasn't good, it smelled bad. But the Norwegians didn't give up. And after years of negotiation, they actually sold 5,000 tons of salmon for a bargain price to Japan. But they, they attached one condition to the sale. The salmon could only be sold as sushi. First, a supermarket chain started selling the salmon as sushi. And then suddenly things went quite quickly. When the supermarket chain sold the, sold the salmon as sushi, then next also conveyor belt sushi chain started uh, buying the Norwegian salmon. And then a famous TV chef praised the quality of the Norwegian salmon as sushi, and it was all set in motion. And as we see today, salmon is for a few years now the most popular topping on sushi in Japan. That's an absolutely fascinating story. There was one point that you mentioned, and I, I thought it was very interesting, that actually the, the Norwegians had that condition that it would be sold just as part of sushi. Was there any particular reason for that? Why wouldn't they allow the sales of salmon to be outside of the sushi concept? Because the, the main advantage of the huge stock that they had was that it could be eaten raw. So mm -hmm. they saw a kind of market gap there, uh, so to say, by which they could differentiate themselves from the salmon that was being caught locally mm -hmm. or domestically. And as such, they would be, it would be a different kind of product or, or food item, so to say. Well, that's really amazing. So if it definitely wasn't for, for Norwegians, we wouldn't really be eating our sushi <laughs> salmon today, right? <laughs> now you already touched upon as well on how the global popularity of sushi actually started happening, right? So you've mentioned that 
it was basically in the 60s originally with the with the tuna right where where american market has been introduced to, to sushi as such but how was it spreading and further so actually as you say it, it, it developed in the 60s and and key actors or key players in, the, in this uh, spreading of, of sushi and Japanese cuisine in general was, was Japanese expat communities. And they were mm -hmm. in, the six, in the 60s were talking primarily American or, or Japanese expat communities on the West Coast of America. And from there, it then spread uh, around the world. The hype itself was directly triggered by the, the Japanese rece uh, recession, which we talked about mid 90s. Okay. So at that time, a lot of the Japanese expats that were living abroad, they were called back to Japan. Mm -hmm. But the infrastructure that was set up especially for them, and we're talking here restaurants and noodle shops, but also supermarkets, um, etc. They, they were built specifically for them, but they stayed, whereas the Japanese expats, they went home. And in order to survive, these restaurants and shops, etc., they needed new consumers. So they had mm -hmm. to target the local population. It's a bit of a similar story as what we had with the surplus tuna that was being caught in the northeast of America, try to find local uh, consumers after the situation changed. But this also meant that there was a shift away from a very controlled export of this Japanese kitchen, which was made by and for Japanese people, to something that was rather by and for, it was targeted for uh, towards and often made by foreigners. Mm -hmm. um, and also in Europe, we see the same. So the expat community here was a center from which Japanese cuisine would, would then spread uh, among the continent. The, the hype here came much later than in the US. So Europe did not have this historical link with Japan. They neither had a strong Japanese diaspora or, or even an affinity with the country and culture as we see in the US. And the biggest group of Japanese expats here would be living in the UK, Germany and France. And that's where we see where Japanese cuisine or the hype around Japanese cuisine started off here in Europe. And then if you would look at these restaurants at the time, the oldest Japanese restaurants in Europe, they, they still felt very Japanese. They, they had a Japanese interior, staff might be serving you in kimono. But this would soon change as the hype started uh, at the end of the 90s. Um, it followed very much this American trend. Um, and we would see here and there in Europe, conveyor belt sushi would be arriving. Other restaurant concepts came to Europe as well. And with that came another shift because originally Japanese cuisine was a kind of expensive upmarket meal for sophisticated and, and rich consumers in the big cities in Europe. And now this became a more affordable concept, but also it's often linked to fast food, uh, quick takeaway sushi, etc. And what we even see uh, happening as well is that it's often made by robots. Uh, you might have seen these videos on YouTube where there's sushi robots that divide your rice yeah. in little little uh, hoops and then these are ready to be rolled, but also conveyor belts, as I said. What is kind of ironic is that this actual spreading of Japanese cuisine or happened much via Chinese entrepreneurs. They had a very big share in spreading and popularizing sushi and the Japanese kitchen in general here in Europe. The Japanese kitchen for them was a very attractive alternative to the saturated market of, of Chinese restaurants. And on top of that, there was also prestige and status and class linked to Japanese cuisine, which obviously promised also higher profit margins. That's very interesting as well, because with lots of these countries that now have very popular global cuisines like Japan, Thailand or Italy, 
you usually can see that there is the push for the food to become more popular globally. But then, as you were describing, once that happens, what happens as well is that the food is no longer promoted necessarily just by the nationals themselves, right? So it's no longer Thai food being served by Thais and being done in a sort of so-called proper Thai way, right? So the Japanese sushi is not done by Japanese, right. it's not being served by Japanese in kimonos and, and it's not probably looking the same, right? So um, we've got probably plenty of different sushi varieties now that wouldn't have really existed in, in the original Japanese cuisine, right? So I'm wondering how is this phenomenon taken up or understood in Japan? I mean, how do they feel about it? Do they like it? Or is there a, a certain sense of nationalism where they would really sort of like to take the control over the food back and rein it all back into what it used to be or to this idea of authentic or traditional cuisine or sushi? Well, on the one hand, I would say because this whole globalization of sushi and Japanese cuisine in general was, it, it led to a lot of media coverage in Japan. And, and with that also comes a certain pride. Yet on the other hand, there's also some kind of disbelief when they see which shocking combinations happen here, or how, how we might do Japanese cuisine wrong in this or that way, overly decorated sushi. In general, I'm not, I wouldn't say that the Japanese public cares that much. The government, however, that's a different story. And they have had a much more engaged response to this international hype. And specifically then also the new identity of, of sushi as it has globalized. And this, this, there's a clear point in time where where this changed, it's said to be triggered by a visit by the, the Japanese Minister of Agriculture who visited a Japanese restaurant in Colorado in 2006 and he was served Korean barbecue along his presumably Japanese sushi. And according to him, this was a... It didn't go down very well. It didn't go down very well indeed. According to him, it was a culinary crime and suddenly... <laughs> Suddenly, the Japanese uh, Ministry of Agriculture realized that many restaurants around the world, which called themselves Japanese, were actually serving some kind of hybrid Asian fusion cuisine or simply had bad quality. And this obviously doesn't reflect well on Japan as a country. And there's a, there was a growing list somehow uh, of reportedly unacceptable gastronomic offenses uh, set up by the government. And this led to a counteroffensive by which they tried to contain this, this kind of globalization and the transformation that comes with Japanese cuisine in this movement. In order to kind of regain control, the Japanese government wanted to start certifying Japanese restaurants abroad. Mm -hmm. um, so this would mean that they would have a label which said this or that restaurant is purely or authentically Japanese. You might have heard about this uh, on the news because it was often jokingly called the sushi police. They did a trial run in France and secret inspectors would go to Japanese restaurants or self-identified Japanese restaurants, I would have to say. And about 30% of these restaurants would not have even gotten the label. So what did they do with these restaurants then? I'm not sure what they did with the restaurants. I know that they changed the program because obviously they got a lot of criticism from both domestically but primarily uh, internationally. And the official version was then slightly adapted or softened, we can say, mm -hmm. instead of approving or certifying Japanese restaurants abroad, the program now only recommends. Um, so they would recommend a, a, a Japanese restaurant both to international consumers, but on the other hand, they would also recommend the actual restaurants how to make their whatever they have on the menu more Japanese by uh, using, for example, actual Japanese rice rather than the variety that they grew or bought in Europe or 
this should be accompanied by Japanese tea, etc. That also falls under recommendation. And also here we see that the ministry seems to be more interested in something that you might be very interested in as well, considering your research topic. We're talking here about export markets, trade, economic interests, rather than the actual authenticity of the kitchen. So that it's very much tied into one big soup there. We're not only talking authenticity and it's not as innocent as just saying this is purely Japanese cuisine. There's obviously a lot of political and ideological interest exactly. in there as well. Definitely. I think you're really right um, in that particular point that there is a lot of politics behind all these efforts. And there's been a concept coined not too long ago about this and it was called gastro diplomacy. So these concerted efforts by the governments to promote the national cuisine. But as we were saying, there is this, this idea of authentic sushi. But when you start scratching the surface, you actually find out that what we see today is very, very far removed from any kind of sense of authenticity. So it's not really all as it seems or as it should be. And then I think right. important questions are, you know, who is to say what is authentic? I'm always very hesitant to talk or, or, or even use the word authentic. If anything, I think we should drop the, the word altogether because it, it's so difficult to, to even decide on, on what is the, the origin or, or the realness of this or that. And we're not only talking food here, it goes way beyond that. Uh, we're talking habits and, and even just products or items, etc. But you touched upon this, this interesting thing called gastro diplomacy. What always strikes me with that is, yes, on the one hand, it's considered like the global dissemination of a certain cuisine or elements of a cuisine and the presumption that this will kind of contribute to the national interest. On the one hand, we're talking sales, tourism, trade, FDI even. But on the other hand, there's also something very interesting that is also considered national interest. And, and this is this state reputation or image that is involved in there. So, so it's kind of a byproduct to me of the or a reflection of whatever is going on in the region as well as domestically it's, it's all tied in with domestic and geopolitics uh, in the region or in a certain country but when you say gastro diplomacy it's always considered to be something or, or it's not always considered but it kind of moves away from a negative idea so it's it's a little bit euphemized so to say yeah. like it should be positive and it helps the national interest but whenever it goes the wrong way and when there's negative gastro diplomacy and when there's state or non-state actors that are getting involved in a kind of debate or even worse conflict related to food, culture and identity, then all of a sudden it's called gastro nationalism. So exactly. we're talking about the same thing, but when the outcome or the aims are, are different, it, it changes a lot. And that relates to me as well back to the fact that food on the one hand can like connect and bring together and, and according to some people if you read certain I wouldn't say necessarily academic uh, material food can, can basically bring world peace so to say cannot mm. can connect everybody etc but on the other hand food and food wars and food conflicts are also there so food is not necessarily only this innocent good thing it, it also ties into a lot of debates that deal with as we said origin authenticity quality conflicts that, that can actually go much deeper than just what we see on the surface. Exactly. As you were rightly pointing out, there's this very noble idea of promoting the, the national food abroad, but it comes with a heavy policing, as you were saying, you know, self-styled police inspectors going to Japanese-like restaurants, testing whether the sushi is really as it should be. 
that's not really very positive sounding. <laughs> but it's also, it, it hints at the point that it's not always as diplomatic as the term would refer exactly. to, right? If, if a nation wants to control what is to be understood as, in this case, Japanese cuisine, for example, it's not as innocent as, as we would think it is. And there's many and yeah. more examples of that. Um, oh, yes. It's definitely not just this lovely image of nice food diplomacy efforts and everyone is happy sitting at the table and eating together, but definitely it has a more shady side or nasty side to it as well. And I think in the case of Japan, if you say, for example, it has to be food that actually was grown in Japan. If we look at reality, only 40% of what Japanese people eat is actually grown in the country. So that would already not work. So how can you then, that's one way of solving the issue of what is Japanese cuisine off the table. So what other ones are there and how are you going to define what actually is this Japanese cuisine? As you were pointing out before, the, the, the whole idea of authenticity when it comes to food is, is very flawed in itself. And I think this counts not only for Japanese cuisine, but I think most cuisines in the world, like one, they are in constant evolution, but that also means that what they are now is also the result of an evolution that went through like centuries. And, exactly. and even if Japan, for example, wants to say that this and that is authentically Japanese, it also comes from, it has been influenced by history, but also what happened, like which were the, if the, the Portuguese came to Japan and brought a lot of food, um, items there and, and influenced Japanese cuisine to a high extent and we're talking here 16th century I would say this obviously influences Jap Japan's cuisine until today if we talk uh, tonkatsu which um, I'm not uh, sorry tonkatsu tempura which is like the battered and fried vegetables and fish for example they actually were brought into Japan by Portuguese missionaries uh, in the 16th century so this is something considered very very Japanese today but if you go a little bit back into history you see that it's not what is Japanese then so it leads us back to the beginning question exactly and I think today's discussion has definitely generated a lot of uh, food for thought um, <laughs> and um, I'm hoping that we will have an opportunity to discuss these things into more depth in future certainly you've been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast co-presented by the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies in Copenhagen and by the Centre for East Asian Studies at the University of Turku in Finland. I'm Petra Desatova, postdoctoral researcher of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and I've been talking today with Tina Borovens, who is an assistant professor in Japan Studies at the Department of International Economics, Government and Business at Copenhagen Business School in Denmark. Thank you very much, Tina. My pleasure. Talk to you soon. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.